You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast. Number 212, Darren Catalano of Helio Campus. Hi, this is Rod Murray. Welcome back to my podcast. That was a teaser from A Passage of Life by Kataro. He's one of my favorite New Age music composers. I hope you enjoy it, so stay tuned for the full piece at the end of my podcast. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I'm very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash pulsepodcast to learn more. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is Rod's Pods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rodspulsepodcast.com. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Darren Catalano, who's the CEO of Helio Campus. Helio Campus utilizes data analytics to improve decision-making. They collect data from various systems and employ data science techniques for tasks like enrollment forecasting and student risk scoring. They also focus on assessment, credentialing, and financial intelligence solutions. Data-driven decision-making is crucial in areas like admissions and financial aid. They acknowledge challenges in pricing strategies and the developing state of generative AI integration. Integrated planning and a holistic approach are seen as vital for mission and financial sustainability. Without further ado, here is my interview with Darren. Darren, I'm so glad to have you talking to my audience today. Uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself, how you uh, got started in, in higher ed and uh, how you got involved with uh, Helio Campus. All right. Well, thank you, Rodney, um, for inviting me to the podcast today and excited for this conversation. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up in New York City and moved into the suburbs. I ended up moving to Virginia my senior year of high school, and I went to the University of Virginia where I studied economics. And, you know, after that, I've kind of um, my whole career has been built um, in, you know, uh, I, I'm the data guy. I've always been a data guy. We've called it many different things. Um, throughout my career, I think it was data operations when I first started or something of the like. And so I started in the telecom um, industry, then I moved into management consulting. And um, uh, then my last role before I joined higher education was um, the director of analytics for Rosetta Stone. And Rosetta Stone was around language learning software. And, you know, among other things, um, you know, we were pretty innovative in um, mining the product logs to understand uh, we called it uh, something a little bit different, but learner analytics. So how were people engaging with the software? How is it correlating? How are the lesson plans correlating with competencies and the such? And so I had an opportunity to move over to the University of Maryland Global Campus, and I was really excited to do so. Um, so I started um, in 2011. I started as um, an AVP in institutional effectiveness um, which was a great role. And then my um, role later got expanded. I became the vice president of analytics um, for the uh, institution. And we kind of um, home-run everything data-related into a single 
uh, department, which we refer to as the Office of Analytics. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, the University of Maryland Global Campus experienced a, a period of unprecedented enrollment volatility and fiscal challenges. Uh, so much so it called into question the viability of the institution. And so um, my team and the department had um, worked very closely with our senior administrators and faculty and staff and helping kind of chart the path forward. Um, so we, we had a successful, um, albeit painful, uh, you know, kind of route from a potential operating deficit to a surplus. And so the um, Board of Regents, the Maryland Board of Regents took note of what we had created, the impact that we had, and they approved a plan to spin us off into a separate company, um, which is now Helio Campus. Um, so I started the company in November of 2015, just myself. And in calendar year 2016, we um, you know, started hiring people, started doing some product development. We went to market of spring of 2016 for fiscal year 17. And here we are today, um, you know, you know, a little over seven years later, or just about seven years later, and uh, we have hundred and coming up on one hundred and seventy clients uh, throughout the country. We support community colleges, regional publics, and privates, um, large R ones and state systems, and uh, we have uh, one hundred and thirty five full time employees, another fifteen part time. So you know, things things have uh, worked out for us, although uh, not an easy road starting in a tech company. Wow, uh, that's that's quite a history. It's very interesting. I didn't know that uh, World Campus. I always uh, knew it was one of the largest uh, online uh, institutions uh, in the country, if not the world. Right? They have really had a large uh, enrollment at one point. So I didn't know that they were, you know, feeling pain like a lot of the small schools uh, were, like uh, like this my last institution. Yeah, yeah but, well, remember that was back in 2013 to yeah. 15. You know, and that okay. Um, Time Before it really frame, caught on. But, but yeah, they have a large base of, you know, enrollment. You know, they've always focused on the adult learner, um, you know, modality. They were early innovators in what was called distance learning, now online mm -hmm. education. So um, it's really, um, I thought it was, I really very much enjoyed my time um, in Global Campus. Um, it really gave me an appreciation for the struggles and, you know, kind of the, uh, joys and the hurdles that people have to overcome, you know, uh, to get their degree and get their education, you know, versus my own experience with a, a more linear path. But um, what it showed me, um, and I have great, um, you know, kind of empathy and and just um, a lot of pride in the work we did, uh, you know, at Global Campus. So it was a fantastic opportunity there. Sure. Now, for those who may be more naive about uh, how uh, your different products work. Um, uh, when you say data analytics, um, where do you get the data from, and uh, you know how do you use it? What's what's the benefit to the university? Yeah, sure. So um, let's start with where the data comes from. You know, one of the key concepts, and you know, at Helio Campus, our flagship data analytics product is what we call student life cycle. So basically, following the student throughout their time at the institution, they leave a very large data footprint. They interact with different, you know, a lot of different departments and areas of the institution. How do we capture that data in a systematic way? And so, you know, we really get the data. There's a couple of primary data sources, you know, 
um, the CRM system. You know, usually, you know, your enrollment management is using a CRM system to capture, you know, kind of that inquiry, you know, the, the top of the funnel inquiry to application to, um, you know, kind of matriculation, you know, then the student information system captures all those course registrations, all the retention degree data. And then you have the learning management system, which is capturing a lot of those learning interactions. Those are like the three big systems that we get data. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the fourth being the financial ERP system, right? Which okay. has, you know, kind of the, um, you know, kind of the, the gives us the insights of the financial operations of the institution. There's a lot of tertiary data systems, both public and, you know, student affairs or otherwise um, student services, but those are the main data systems. So we take in that data, we organize it, model it, provide self-service capabilities for the institution. But really to get the value out of the data, it is, um, you know, leveraging, you know, data science and analytics techniques. Um, and so we do so, we do things like enrollment forecasting, yield modeling, financial aid, optimization, retention modeling, student risk scoring, and the like. So we use the data and depending on the priorities of the institution, you know, we really kind of leverage the data and our data science capabilities to um, model and predict, you know, certain uh, key metrics for the institution. Interesting. So it sounds like you have a quite a wide spread uh, sources of information. How granular does it get? I mean, I'm familiar with with products that we used to use in my institution that um, would give feedback um, to the student, to the uh, particular course faculty member, and and the um, you know the advisor. Um, does it get down to that level of performance in in individual courses? And yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it is. We capture data at the most atomic level. So we go down to the lowest. It's, you know, we call it the grain of data, the lowest grain of data. So that's the you know, student course section, faculty member. So whatever's the lowest grain of data within the system, we start there. And, you know, we're in an era now where computing power is cheap. So, and storage is cheap. So, you know, kind of our philosophy is get the data at the most atomic, get the raw data at the most atomic level, store it, then model it. So, you know, kind of our process is to dump all the data into a data lake. And then we go through that transformation process then we run it through the metadata layer, which adds all the business logic and rules and checks for data integrity checks and whatnot. And then we cache it in memory uh, for the, um, you know, kind of business intelligence tool that we use. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, I get that. I'm wondering though, um, Al, is it, if a student um, is performing poorly on a midterm exam, does that raise flags and, and shoots that out to uh all concerned? Yeah. So is it more after the fact sort of reporting? Yeah. So, I mean, so it's both, you know, and so we, you know, we try not to use a um, single factor, you know, so a lot of the modeling that we do. So I think what you're kind of referring to is what we call student risk scoring. So, okay. you know, someone that's doing one student who doesn't do as well in the midterm may be less of a concern than for another student. So we do, you know, we use machine learning and oh, cool. um, the ability to take in many different variables and to try to um, tease out, you know, what is, what are the primary variables affecting a specific student? What are the secondary variables? But in the end, you know, you're just trying to get to, you know, I think sometimes we try to be overly scientific 
Um, a fact of the matter is you're just trying to gauge relative risk for the students and you're trying to have a conversation with them. You know, one of the, um, when we first started doing this at the um, University of Maryland Global Campus, um, we had some hard lessons learned. And I'll tell you, one of the one of the lessons learned is if your outreach is too specific, hey, we noticed you got a bad grade on this test, or um, we noticed you missed class, you know, it's it's too much of a big brother approach, you know, and it kind of like it's creepy. It uh, you know, it's not kind of like it's not received well versus just understanding that, hey, for a myriad of factors that we think we understand the students at risk here from the modeling perspective, here's the top factors why a student may be at risk. It may be financial variables, meaning they can't afford college. It may be academic performance. It may be something around um, their lack of engagement on campus, but we don't really know. So our recommendation is we highlight, you know, we're trying to do with this type of analysis is prioritize the institution's resources, whether it be their advising team, faculty, and say, if you can make 10 calls, here are the 10 students to reach out to. And it just means that they are recommended approaches, just have a conversation with them. We don't know exactly why, we have some data on why we think it is, but the um, biggest um, response we got um, for any outreach we ever did when I was a campus administrator was a simple empathetic email from faculty reaching out to students at risk, just saying, how are you? Um, so, you know, kind of our big learning was don't, even though we have the data and we're using machine learning and these sophisticated techniques, we don't really know there's some missing data sets and, and predicting human behaviors is, you know, a very tricky endeavor. So just um, have a conversation with the students. Does it get down to the uh, level of um, assisting the faculty by providing the boilerplate for the emails and connecting them with the students or connecting the visors with the students, or, or do you sort of put that on them? Yeah. So usually I think what you're highlighting is to, um, is really important. So when we first started this, and again, I'm going to just talk firsthand. I can reference some of our clients, but I like our clients to speak for themselves. Um, but there are two distinct challenges when you're going to, you know, when you're tackling student success, one is the data piece. And I'll tell you, you know, when we were originally doing this in 2012, 13, 14, you know, we thought the data part was going to be the hardest part. But in fact, it was what you're referring to. It's now what do you do with the data? And so developing and testing those intervention strategies, we have recommendations and best practices, but really the institution needs to take that data and act on it. They need to have, you know, a team that's focused on what are those intervention strategies, testing various intervention strategies, and you know, kind of rolling that out to the institution. So that's the second half of, you know, if you want to make an impact, you got to really focus on that intervention strategy and and the methodical way to test and assess, you know, kind of what's working and what's not. And that's what I was referring to when I was describing our the highest response we ever got, you know, to that empathetic email. It's it's the rigor around that intervention strategy and measuring it. Got it. Got it. Um I hear more and more about uh, connecting students, you know, a lot of students, especially freshmen, they're in there. They they don't know what they're going to study. They're forced, in most cases, to pick a major, and uh, they often question, you know, why they why are they learning a specific topic? Is there any connection that you have um, to um, bring in industry and what the needs are in terms of uh, you know employment? 
and bringing that uh, to bear? Yeah, so let me talk a little bit about um, Hill Campus more broadly. So I think that's less on the data analytics side. It's a little bit more on the assessment and credentialing side. Right. So, you right. know, really the way that we've organized Hilo Campus is um, around what we refer to as institutional effectiveness um, 2.0. And really what we're trying to get at is to help institutions align themselves better for the future, you know, and take a more holistic approach to planning, assessment, data-informed decision-making. And we have organized a company around three main product offerings. So we um, have our data analytics solution, which we just talked about, but we also have our assessment and credentialing solution, and then we have our financial intelligence solutions. Um, and so assessment and credentialing is really getting at the heart of are we our students, how do we measure that students are learning what we say they're learning? And then how do we, the second part of it is the credentialing, right, which is around you know, credentialing, badging, and if you're familiar with the comprehensive learner record like CLR, of like mapping that. So taking what have they learned, providing the CLRs really, um, you know, in crude, simplistic terms, a um, skills-based transcript. And then how do you map that to um, job you know, opportunities for the student? And so what I would say is that second piece of making the connection, you know, the first piece is having rigor around the curriculum and doing what we call curriculum mapping. And so the curriculum mapping is saying, let's start with the course level, but course program institutional level. Here's my course learning objective, mapping that to content. This content's gonna teach them these objectives. Then this learning objective maps to this formal assessment. And we're gonna you know, have, um, you know, execute these formal assessments to ensure mastery of that learning objective and then these kind of learning objectives map to these skills, right? That's kind of like the curriculum mapping piece that's really important. Um, so the um, mapping from the course learning objective to skills to, you know, kind of uh, careers and jobs, I think is in the nascent stages, but certainly something that we're looking to tackle I don't know that we've got it exactly right yet. I don't know that anyone has, um, but certainly that is a, a critical piece going forward and there's a number of different ways to do it. Interesting, yeah. Certainly if uh, if students can be shown that, uh, listen, uh, you're, you're studying this topic because uh, company XYZ is looking for um, programmers or looking for you know uh, people in this particular area, it certainly gives them a little bit more incentive to, uh, to study. So I think it's probably... Uh, important these days um how about your um the financial intelligence what what does that mean what where how does that come in yeah sure so you know one of the uh i think hot topics coming up and you read it in the news all the time is just around the sustainability of institutions um and so if you think about our um you know the university of maryland global campus our firsthand experience um we were a tuition revenue dependent institution so fluctuation you know, big fluctuations in enrollments and tuition revenue was, you know, um, uh, fairly impactful to an institution like UMGC. And I think, you know, may, you know, maybe a, an institution like UMGC is at the tip of the spear, but there are many, I think, you know, there are the haves and have nots now, right? You have the flagship public, selective, you know, highly selective institutions that they, they have um, large endowments, they have less pressures on them. But for a big swath of higher education, um, there's a lot of financial pressures. And so oh, yeah. what our 
financial intelligence suite is really focused on are you operating the institution in a um, efficient and effective manner? And are your operations sustainable? And so we have three main offerings. Um, the first is our newest product, financial modeling. And so this was something that we saw the need as the pandemic hit. Many institutions were trying to do scenario planning. They're trying to say, well, if this happens and this happens, this happens, what does it mean? But then the alternative would be this. And, and so um, the financial modeling software is really geared at giving you the ability to do scenario um you know, scenario planning. So say, hey, here's our base case. If current trends persist, here's what happens. But here's alternative scenario one, alternative scenario two and three. And here's the impact it has on the financial sustainability of the institution. Here's how it changes our net operating surplus or loss. Here's how it changes our net uh, our net assets on our balance sheet. Here's how it changes our liquidity um, and the like. And so it gives them the ability to kind of a uh, you know, look down downfield a little bit past the next fiscal year. Um, we also have a benchmarking consortium, um, and it benchmarks administrative and academic costs, you know, in particular um, from a labor spend perspective. And so it allows the institutions to do internal benchmarking. So you could compare school to school or external be- benchmarking. You could compare yourself against how much are you spending on, you know, um, information technology versus your peer schools and in, and what subcategories are you spending more or less, um, so on and so forth. And then our last product is um, what we call academic performance management. And it really gets to the heart of the sustainability and the financial heuristics of your academic departments and programs um, by understanding the contribution margin for those products, um, instructor utilization, um, curriculum subscription rates, and the like. Wow, that's a mouthful. Yeah, I can see there's, there's a lot there. What can you give me an example of? Uh, obviously, the, these schools before they um, contract with you, they're going to know what the return on investment is. So what 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 are some examples of of where schools uh, save money by using your software? Yeah. So what I you know the way the, there's a, a couple of different ways, but what I would say is you know one of our goals you know our primary goals is to really help them take them all, uh, kind of go back to a more holistic approach to planning, assessment, and decision-making. And so if you think about like from a data analytics perspective, the, you know, analyzing and using the data and modeling on the um, admissions funnel or financial aid data, it can increase, it increases yield, which increases new students, which increases net tuition revenue. Likewise, the work that we do from a student success perspective, right? The intent is to retain and graduate more students. And, you know, the benefit of retaining and graduating more students, in addition to that's the mission of the institution, is it preserves net tuition revenue. Net tuition revenue is a big input to the overall operating budget and revenues for um, the institution. And so you can normally see, um, you know, kind of a big um, return on investment through that lens. But there's also the lens of understanding your operations and understanding areas where you're overinvested and you have opportunity to spend less and areas that are underinvested. Um, so many of the institutions we work with, it's a little bit of a zero sum game. So it says, hey, if I wanna, if I wanna invest here, I gotta find the money from somewhere, right? I either gotta get more efficient or I gotta combine things or I gotta stop doing things to find money. And so that's part of what we help them do. Got it, got it. Uh, without naming names, can you think of uh, any particular scenarios where uh, 
say, wow, this this school was really on the wrong track. And and these and, and there's some some examples of mistakes that schools make. Yeah, sure. So um I use one example that just comes top of mind. Um, and this is a you know a data analytics example where we used the data to help them make a policy change. So the institution had very specific policies around um you know, the, the qualification for merit aid and need-based aid, you know, and so basically, but through our analysis, we basically showed them that they were being punitive to their, their, their kind of policy around merit aid was punitive towards their core student, you know, and so they were giving aid to the students who, they were not getting a, a good return on investment on their aid. They were giving aid to students who would either not come or would transfer out of the institution and they were foregoing, you know, being their policies were punitive towards their core students who wanted to come and stay and graduate, right. you know, at the institution. And so by using the data, we showed them how um, they need to make a couple of different changes. One was they need to shift their mix of aid between merit and need. They need to rebalance less merit aid and more need-based aid um, would, would be a better strategy for them. And two, um, we helped them refine their financial aid policies around merit aid so that it, it catered more towards their core student versus the aspirational profile of student that they, um, you know, kind of were geared towards. And so it's a very data-driven approach um, to really helping them make policy changes, but then getting that return by improving, by making these changes, you know, really helping them in attracting new students, um, helping those reducing unmet need, um, which then increases yield and retention rates. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking back to my own institution. At one point, they changed their, you know, typically, I don't know if you agree with this, but typically schools would, you know, they have a published, uh, you know, uh, sticker price, and then they end up uh, basically giving everybody, uh, you know, uh, Dean's Award and cuts just about everybody's tuition almost in half. So at one point, they did a reset, and they said, well, let's just, because I was scaring away too many students. So they said, well, they'll, they'll just bring their their sticker price way down and just not give big awards. Uh, is, is that something that uh, people are doing? Is And what, what's your view on, on that uh, policy? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, pricing strategy in higher education is um, top of mind for all enrollment managers. Um, so I'd say is most institutions have not done the reset, right? So most institutions, private institutions, discount rates, or well, average discount rates are well above 50%. So wow. discount, you know, so that means that, you know, on average, the student, as in your example, you know, gets, you know, aid or, you know, different scholarships or aid packages that covers 50% of the tuition price. Um, and then for public institutions, it's been rising pretty steadily. It's now in the 30s, um, you know, or thereabouts. And so, Pricing and financial aid optimization, which is the work, you know, some of the work that we do is really top of mind for enrollment managers. But what I would say is that most have not reset. So most people increase their sticker price every year um, because there are still students who pay full freight and they need they need that extra, you know, kind of dollar. But the um, discount rates are kind of um, have, have been increasing very steadily. Um and it's becoming a little bit problematic when you get, you know, like in any other industry, if you said we have to discount the price 
by 50% or more, they'd say it's mispriced, you know, and to your point, do a price reset. Um, so that's been a, a strategy that's been discussed a lot. Um, and there have been a handful of institutions or more than a handful that have done so, but a majority have decided against it for various reasons. Got it. Got it. Of course, I'm, I'm a, much like you, a, a technologist, although I haven't been that deep in the weeds for, for a while, but uh, I'm interested. It's, it's such a buzzword now, but AI, mm-hmm. AI and machine learning. I think you did mention machine learning. Yeah. Um, what uh, what can you tell me about uh, these new technologies and how you're employing them? Yeah, sure. So we have long um, used machine learning. So if I go back to the uh, my time at the University of Maryland Global Campus, we started working with a vendor first, and then built our in-house capabilities. Now we have it as you know at Helio Campus, and so um, you know the difference. So AI is a form of machine learning. It is the you know large language models, right? And so what I'd say is that we are still like I think what is top of mind for everyone right now is I guess I should say not AI but generative AI is the use of these large language models and using them for different purposes. And so what I would say is we as a company are still looking at how to integrate generative AI into our products and into our operations. I think we have a lot of ideas, we have some pilots, but we're still it's still pretty nascent. You know, it's so new. And you got to be careful because, you know, this is, you know, like, um, the you know, we don't own these large language models. So you have to, what we're looking at is not using a chat GPT where anything you, any prompts or anything you do in chat GPT, OpenAI, which is the company that produces it, they own that, that data in perpetuity. So you have to be very careful. You can't upload um, proprietary confidential data, yeah. you know, uh, certainly never student data. Perfect. So we're looking yeah. at how we get more walled guard, like large language models that we can control um, and that uh, have the appropriate security and whatnot. So we're still in this nascent stage, even from a technology privacy policy perspective that we have to figure out. And I think we're halfway through um, figuring that out in, in a lot of the cloud services, whether it be AWS, which we use, or Azure, or, you know, kind of um, Google service are kind of building out these services. So we haven't deployed it. I think we're testing, piloting, doing a lot of research right now, but we have long made use of, uh, well, call it's funny, I was just going to say traditional machine learning, but, you know, machine learning where we're, we're ingesting large amounts of data, you know, using different algorithms to predict different results. And whenever it's, you know, whenever you build a model, whether it be a forecasting model, you want to use different techniques. Um, You know, so for forecasting, we do time series forecasting, where we want to say over time with different confidence intervals, how tight can we get those confidence intervals on what that enrollment is going to be? Whereas you do student risk scoring, you might use a different algorithm, which is random forest, which you know, calculates all the relative possibilities that could happen and what's the most likely tree branch that's going to be the outcome, you know, if you will. And so we've long made use of those and and those are kind of um, more mature models. And I think the generative AI is kind of what's new to the scene. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm reminiscent of, uh, you know, uh, Tesla autopilot. You really can't. It's really not autopilot. You have to keep your hands on it. So I can't imagine just turning over some of your existing functions to run on autopilot, so to speak, without somebody really taking a look at it. 
Yeah, and I'll tell you, um, you know, our our um, head of data science here, she and I have had um, many conversations. You know, we're um, like our, uh, I'll hesitate to call it our formal methodology, although I've asked her, I said I want to formalize this, is, um, you know, data science in higher education is very different. So my, I have a twin brother and he's a, a commercial airline pilot. He's captain of one of the big Airbus um, planes. And, you know, He's operating like, you know, so, you know, they, he works, he flies an airplane, they have sensors all over the planes, and they have machine data, and they can predict with high level of accuracy if an engine's going to fail, right? And that's because it's machine data, and you're predicting a kind of machine outcome. Well, in higher education, we have to be very careful. Um, we are trying to predict human behaviors, and we have blind spots in the data, right? We don't know... We don't know things about the student. We don't know their day-to-day experience. Like, you know, we we may say that they're, they may leave the institution because they're having a bad experience with our roommate. Well, no system do we have that captures the data that they are unhappy with their roommate. So we have to be, when you're, you're, when you're predicting human behaviors, it's a lot more complicated and tricky. We have to be yeah. much more careful than when we are trying to predict if a, um, you know, kind of manufacturing line is going to fail or an engine's going to fail. Yeah. And so part of our philosophy, it, we call, you know, it's a, it's a um, distinct, you know, kind of modeling philosophy around human in the loop, you know, saying, Hey, we need to capture data, have the inputs reviewed by somebody, whether it be advising our data scientists, someone else, we need to capture additional information. So perhaps like the human in the loop concept, applying it to kind of, you know, student risk scoring would say, we're going to get the data from the student information system, the CRM system, but then the advisor is going to capture these 10 pieces of information. That's going to be inputs to it. We're going to predict, uh, you know, the risk for a student. The advisor is going to have the ability to review it and override it or add data to influence the model. So it's that human in the loop concept. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's the right model for higher education. We have to be really careful. You know, everyone, hey, I'm I'm really big on the application and future of generative AI. I just think we have to be really careful when we talk about anything related to students. Yeah, no, I, I certainly can understand that. I, I'm just thinking here about um, what some of your financial inputs are. Do you, do you actually uh, have inputs about the economy, about the interest rate? Uh, does that factor in at all? You know, so we don't really put those as inputs. You know, so mostly what we're doing is we're focused on the student's ability to pay. You know, so really um, they are enrolling and they are declaring their um, intent to enroll. They fill out the FAFSA form, you know, so on and so forth. So we have information on their ability to pay. Then we calculate their what's called unmet need that says, okay, well, what is their, you know, outside of the, we talked about the discount rate, their financial aid package sans loans, right? Because loans is really not an ability to pay, but like, what is their aid, scholarships, grants, and other things that reduce the cost of tuition, what is their ability to pay based on their FAFSA form, you know, from a family contribution perspective, so on and so forth, what's their work study, and then what's the remaining? Like what that's Mm -hmm. called their unmet need, which means they have to go get loans or find some way to fund it. So really the way that we're approaching it is by calculating and understanding um, a student's unmet need and ability to pay, and then doing the statistical analysis of how that impacts 
you know, kind of their retention, their 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 retention, graduation rates, so on and so forth, among other factors. Got it. Got it. Well, listen, we're I think we're almost uh, out of time uh, to be uh, respectful to my audience, uh, but I also want to give uh, you a chance to give some closing words. If there's any new features or functionality that coming down the pike, uh, any other closing words you'd like to say to a potential audience out there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the things so I won't focus on any particular product, I'll go just more broad, you know, um, part of our message that we're trying to bring to market and, and working with our clients is all of these things are integrated together, right? So you have to look at your academic program alongside with student learning outcomes and their career outcomes, alongside the efficiency and sustainability of your, you know, of the university's operations. And so all of these things have to be done and looked at together. The planning has to be integrated. And that's the way to really kind of think about how all these things come together. You know, this concept of integrated planning and, and combining the data, you know, is a real big focus of what we're trying to do, you know, kind of with our clients and giving that more holistic view towards, um, you know, kind of learning, assessment, planning, decision-making. And that's really, I think, important going forward because um, you could have the best academic programs in the world that deliver the best outcomes, but perhaps the operations aren't as efficient and sustainable and you're, you're, you can't, you can't serve students if you can't afford to run the institution. And so these things have to balance each other. The, the mission and money have to constantly come into balance. And so what we're trying to do is provide the data tools and best practices around how to do that. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, listen, I, I learned a lot. Um, uh, I think that was great. I appreciate your time with my audience and I uh, wish you the best of luck. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time today as well. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So please stay in by for A Passage of Life by Kataro. And until next time, have a great week.
that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of any other institution or company. Yeah.